said that at the beginning because as Robin said that the New Testament reading tied into the Old Testament reading well it ties into the sermon especially on the Old Testament where we're just finishing up uh, Exodus and it ties into the sermon in this way the, the nation of Israel was very aware of their special place in God's history and they were tied to God. They revered Moses. They loved the law, theoretically. But almost more than any of that, they loved their land and where they came from. They loved the idea of the Holy Land of Israel. Now see, if you're anything like me, you look at the history of the United States as a striking example of the providence of God working in the world, just as the Jews did. After all, 500 years ago, uh, our continent was largely unknown. I say largely, we can play the Leif Erikson history and things like that, but largely unknown 500 years ago was a blank space on the map. Have you ever looked at a, a globe from like the 1920s or something, and probably the Gobi Desert was like this, where it was just a blank space on a map. It was where nobody had ever gone before. A New Guinea was like that until after World War II. Nobody knew what was there. The, United, the continent of the Americas was much like that. The exploration was confined to the coastline of the east. The inhabitants of this land were unknown. The plants of, the, uh, of this continent had never been, some of them, had never been seen before, along with the animal life. As recently as 215 years ago, this, uh, this country of ours was still largely uninhabited and unknown. And when I mean this country of ours, I mean the West. You know, it was in 1804, uh, that Thomas Jefferson sent the Lewis and Clark expedition out to explore the land that he had just acquired from France. And it spanned a huge amount of our country. We did not know it was there. It's not as though people were not in it, because we know that the uh, Native Americans were there, but also trappers, mountain men, had traveled the area, but it had not been mapped. It had, there was no history of the area people really didn't know what was going on. So Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out to map the land. To They took an ornithologist along to draw the birds to make a list of the animals that were found here. Lewis and Clark found 122 new species that had never been seen before. And considering that one of them is the coyote, which can be found coast to coast now. Why weren't they on the East Coast back then? But coyotes were unknown. But among the, what they found, they, they, they um, encountered the grizzly bear. Uh, as I said, coyotes. Mountain sheep were unknown elsewhere in the world. Uh, pronghorn antelope. The, uh, the masters of the animals had figured out that this was some type of antelope but it took a while to figure out that it was no known antelope in the rest of the world because Africa obviously had them. Jackrabbits. 
were discovered by Lewis and Clark. They had never seen a long-eared rabbit before. In one 24-hour period in Great Falls, Montana, and this cracks me up knowing my son lived in Great Falls, Montana, and one of the pictures on his website is him on a golf course with a warning sign with an eagle <laughs> attacking a um, golfer, okay? Just, just to let you know that Mon Montana will kill you dead if you let it. But in one 24-hour period, Meriwether Lewis was nearly bitten by a rattlesnake. He was attacked by a wolverine, which if you don't know are like the most vicious animals on the face, small animals on the face of the earth. He was charged by a buffalo, or bison if you prefer, and almost eaten by a grizzly bear. And in his journal that night, he wrote, the entire animal kingdom has conspired against me. Okay? At the beginning of their journey, they ran into Indians that warned them about the bears. They weren't like any bears you'd ever seen. They were called white bears back then because a grizzly can be very whitish colored. But the Indians said, you know, these bears are bad. Watch out. And, and Lewis and Clark, being young men and brave, you know, sort of scoffed at that. Um, but it did not take long for them to write in their journal that their curiosity about grizzly bears had been satisfied. <laughs> they wanted no more part of them. Now, it's surprising for me to find out that I've been alive for over one-third of the time that the West and those animals have been known. Our family and Robin's family was in Jamestown for the 400th anniversary of uh, the settlement of Jamestown in 2007. Uh, in 2007, which meant that in 1607 was the first permanent English settlement in this country. That's just a blip of time. That is no time at all. Fifteen years from that, we'd see the founding of Plymouth Colony, an experiment in Christian governance spurred on by religious repression in Europe. From that beginning, the great migration of Puritans to the British colonies on this side of the Atlantic uh, would lead to the founding of the United States, the first country built on a Judeo-Christian foundation. And there were something like 45,000 Puritans that came across from 1830 to 1848. It was a huge migration of Puritans. And if you want to put it another way, these were serious Christians. It's like, it's like 45,000 Reformed Baptists moving across the uh, sea and setting up a country, a settlement. God has blessed the entire world through this country from the standard of living. It has... Uh, Developed and spread about the world to, um, the effort, uh, through the efforts of American inventors. Diseases have been eliminated completely. Well, not all diseases, but many diseases have been completely eliminated by our doctors. The concepts of our founding documents have been spread, or tried to have been spread, throughout the world. And the efforts of our Christian missionaries has alleviated suffering, and 
pointed out sin and has gone out to the ends of the earth. And yet, if you're truthful about the United States and look at it as it is now and how it now operates, you might come to the conclusion that God has blessed the world through her and has now moved on. Indeed, the church seems more dynamic elsewhere in the world. Perhaps the United States is through in God's plan, no longer his instrument as he works his plan of reconciliation, redemption, and the fulfillment of prophecy. And if that is the case, we should not be surprised because after all, God's history has shown us this before. It's it's exactly what Israel faced as the high priest in Sanhedrin confronts Stephen. Now, my family has been on this continent for almost 400 years now. A dozen, at least, direct lines back to the Puritans, because if you do the... It took me a long time to figure this out. I have a line that goes back to the Puritans. No, if your family is here and intermarries, you've got any number of lines. If you've got one, you've got a dozen... You might have three dozen. You might have four dozen because I've got something like a thousand great-grandparents that go back 400 years. And, and who knows how many lines. The only ones we know about are the ones that show up. But, but think of the Sanhedrin. Their forefathers had been in the land for four times that long. When we're talking about Moses setting up the tabernacle and keep the tabernacle at going in your mind, when he set that up, it was probably about 1450 B.C. because Joshua came into the land of Canaan in 1405 B.C. depending on if it was set up at the beginning of the wandering in the wilderness, that add 40 years to that, so 1445, somewhere in there. Their forefathers at the time that we're dealing with Stephen uh, have been in the country for 1,400 years. The Sanhedrin knew its history better than I know my families. After all, we just went through Genesis and Exodus, written down for them, and the Sanhedrin knew their uh, law and their prophets. They knew the history of Israel. They were proud of that and of their standing as God's chosen people. Have you ever thought that maybe it was a mistake for God to tell the Jews that they were his chosen people? That maybe leave them guessing. Now, now God doesn't make a mistake. There's a reason for that, of course. But, but I can just see, you know, if I was told that I was God's chosen... Hold it, I have. Never mind. <clears throat> As a Christian. Okay. The Sanhedrin knew its history. But even more than that, the Jews of 35 A.D., at the time here that we're talking about uh, Stephen's appearance before the Sanhedrin, were extraordinarily proud, protective, and defensive of four things. They were defensive of God. They were defensive of Moses. They loved the temple, and they loved the land of Israel. And these four were inextricably linked. 
God had given them, the Hebrews, the law through Moses. God had given the instructions for the building of the temple, which we've just gone through. And God had given them the land of Israel. Last week we read this in Acts 6, 8 through 15. Because we're actually going to get to our scripture for today. Well, part of it. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And then it says, in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. When the debaters from the synagogue of the freedmen could not withstand Stephen's argument, they instigated men to lie and set up false witnesses. The charges against him were blasphemy against God and Moses and speaking against the temple and the law. The one thing they didn't charge him with was anything against the land. What follows now is known as Stephen's defense, but F.F. Bruce points out that basically it's no defense at all. What he's going to say is not a defense of anything. It was an offense. Uh, Stephen was not looking to be acquitted by the Sanhedrin. And that's an odd thing. When you go to trial, you usually want to be acquitted. That was not Stephen's goal here at all. Stephen is going to point out what the high priests and leaders of the Jews did not understand about Christians, because the high priests didn't understand Christians. God's will, the temple, and God himself. Uh, The commentator uh, Daryl Bach says that there are two main points that Stephen wants to get through to the Sanhedrin. God raised up a series of leaders that the Jews rejected, including Jesus. Jesus himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. It was well known that they, they did stone the prophets. The Jewish leaders made a habit of killing those God had sent them because after all, Where was the prophet in having someone else take their place? The second theme is the inappropriate response to God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple. Remember talking about Solomon. And this was shocking to me. You know, when 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 I finally when you don't really know what the high places meant. It's one thing to read that that Solomon set up the high places. What are the high places? Until you know that it's where the pagans sacrificed children, 
How do you know that? And the euphemism of Ahaz, not, I don't think it was Ahaz, I think it was his son, uh, putting his children to the fire, what does that mean? It means burning them alive on a sacrifice. Until you understand that, you don't really understand how inappropriate and inappropriate is not a good word. It's a word that one of my commentators used, but inappropriate is not the correct word for what they were doing, okay? In both instances, in the tabernacle and the temple, the Jews fell not only into idolatry, but child sacrifice. Also, the temple, they did not understand. Do you know how Christians today are told, you know, it's fine if you're a Christian, but leave it at church? Basically, the Jews wanted God to remain in the temple. He was safe in the temple. They knew where he was in the temple. They wanted to confine him to the land of Israel and to the temple. Remember, when I was teaching about the Babylonian captivity, they had to figure out whether or not God could be worshipped outside of Israel. Now, mind you, when I say this, when I'm teaching it, I'm just sort of glossing over things. Hold it. Robin just read to us about the tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle? It wasn't in Israel. It was outside of Israel. God set up the worship of himself outside of Israel. Israel had nothing to do with it, other than the fact that God is going to give the land to the Hebrew people. But Israel had nothing to do with the Worshipping of God. Abraham was called when he was far off. And then recalled again. And recalled sounds wrong. But he was called again when he was in Haran. He was not in. He was not in Israel. I hope that the idea of confining God to a single place like Israel. Or the United States for the last 400 years would be incomprehensible to you. I sit back and think of uh, where, where did the priests of Israel think God was during the Israelites' stay in Egypt? Also, when Moses was sent to lead them out, it was Egypt. God was doing his work outside the country of Israel. The tabernacle, after all, was where the presence of God met with Moses in the wilderness. Before the Israelites entered the land, God led the Jews in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. In the speech of Stephen here, he is going to point out that much of God's activity in relation to his people has historically taken place outside of Palestine. How much do we really know of what he did in Palestine? An awful lot of it deals with Jesus and John the Baptist, and it's from the New Testament. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego all take place in Babylon. How much of this, I can tell you how much of it takes place in Israel. Uh, Think back to Samson, 
A lot of Samson's work takes place in Israel. But Richard Longnecker says that the, the Holy Land is not just Israel. The, the Holy Land is not the only Holy Land. But wherever God meets his people is holy ground. And as we're meeting here today, in this facility that we rent, we're meeting on holy ground. Which brings us to our passage for today. And I should let you know that this is really an introduction. to Because we're not going to get through verse 4. We're going to get through verse 1. We're not going to get to Stephen today. Acts 7.1 says, And the high priest said about the charges brought against him that I just read before, are these things so? Now, I pointed out last week that only two people are named in this passage, and it is Stephen and uh, Saul. So we do not know who the high priest is. It does not give his name. It should be Caiaphas. But we'll remember that when Jesus was brought before the high priest for his trial shortly before this, Uh, He was brought first to Annas, Caiaphas' father-in-law, and Annas was identified as the high priest, and Caiaphas was also uh, identified as the high priest. So we don't know who this is. It's probably Caiaphas. We last saw Caiaphas, as I said, at the trial of Jesus, where where Jesus was railroaded by false men. Railroaded might be a wrong term here in a historical context. Camel trained might be better. Uh, after all, Joseph before him was camel trained by his brothers, so there's precedent. So Caiaphas says, are these things so? Now as F.F. Bruce points out, these charges are garbled. Every charge they brought against Jesus in that past sentence are twisted. The words are twisted. None of them are true. He did not speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. He did not speak words against, against the temple and the law. Jesus did not say he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. None of that was true. Now, I don't know how many judicial proceedings you folks have been in, okay? But I was a teenage driver in the San Fernando Valley growing up. And I drove a, a car that was a notoriously fast automobile. And police could see me coming, and they would just wait to give me tickets. And, and I would not fight a good ticket. If, if they were behind me and, and timed me and gave me a ticket, they won. But um, most of them were not that way. And so I spent a lot of time in court because I... Not a lot of time in court... But I won 18 traffic tickets, okay? If you've ever been in traffic court, and you're never the first one through, you know, always you're the one after lunch. But if you're ever in traffic court, the judge will say, are you guilty of this? And and time after time after time, the person would come up and judge said, the judge would say, guilty or not guilty? And they'd say, guilty with an explanation. Okay, don't waste my time, okay? All the judge hears here is guilty, okay? He doesn't need to know that you were drying your hair on the way to class. He doesn't need to know any of these things. Guilty, 
guilty with explanation does not cut it. And yet, basically, Stephen is going to do this in this passage. He's not going to plead innocent to what they're accusing him of. He's going to set them straight on what the charges against him should be and that he is indeed guilty of them. Basically, Stephen's going to say, uh, I'm guilty, but your charges are wrong. And, and because I've been driving for 50 plus years, and because basically everything that can happen to you behind the wheel has already happened to me, I've been in that situation also where, where a police officer charged me with something, and, and I said, you're wrong. And he said, well, here's a ticket. And Megan was five. So I take her to court with me to see how the court system works. And, and the CHP officer told his version of the, the events to the judge, who then wearily asked me what I thought had occurred, and I told him that I agreed with the officer, which really perked him up. I, I think it was the first time he'd ever heard that. It got his attention, and um, he said, uh, what do you mean? I said, we just agree, disagree. We agree on what happened. I just don't think it was against the law. And this is what Stephen is going to explain to the judge, is that their idea of what Stephen has done wrong is not wrong. Stephen disagrees with the charges and will clarify what they should be, like I said earlier. Uh, and Stephen starts off with Jewish history, and commentators will say, this next 35 verses, just to let you know that we're going to be going through 35 verses, and I don't know how I'm going to teach those 35 verses yet, if it's going to be verse by verse. The last time I heard this preach was by my daughter's church, and Pastor Sheffield did the whole speech in one sermon. He just said, let's do this, and we'll see how that goes. But anyway, Stephen starts with this recitation of Jewish history. Uh, and in doing so, he is demonstrating to the Sanhedrin that he is just as much a Torah-believing Jew as they are. He starts off with brethren, okay? And he's saying, I'm one of you guys. A declaration of faith such as this, at this time in history, the first century AD, was often tied into a recital of God's intervention in the life of Israel. So Stephen is going to go back and show what God has done and why he hasn't spoken against God. Something else we'll see as we study this uh, offense of Stephen, as somebody called it, is that unlike the apostles, he does not preach Christ during this sermon. He does not bring up Jesus at all. What he does is show through the history of the nation that they are in need of a new working of God in the life of Israel. And that new working of God, he is going to be the Messiah. Something more than Moses, something more than the temple, more than the law and the land was needed to bring the nation of Israel back to God. I started out with our country, our continent, and its use by God for his kingdom this last 400 years. Here we, like Israel, 
have we, like Israel, grown tired of doing God's will? Now, we've had a little bit of this. Maybe, maybe it's turning. A Catholic bishop told Nancy Pelosi she may no longer take communion because of her stance on abortion. Perhaps this patient waiting, as I spoke before, of changing hearts and minds of people versus abortion, perhaps that is working. Perhaps the Christian long strategy of loving your neighbor and not fighting will win out. We'll see how that goes. But have we tired of doing God's will? Have we, our nation, like Solomon and Ahaz, apostatized, built our own places, high places, instead of pushing on with building God's kingdom? I think the next few years we'll tell our story on this. I think that that's what it's going to take us to see actually what comes from this. The Sanhedrin in 35 AD still thought that they were in the will of God. They thought they were doing God's work in 35 AD. And remember what that means. They've already killed Jesus. Right? They've already punished the apostles. They've now got Stephen and they still think they're doing God's will. And that is a warning to anybody in this country who thinks... This country is doing God's will. The Sanhedrin thought they were in the will of God, but God had left Israel 300 years before. There was a silence of 300 years from Micah until John the Baptist. The prophets had not spoken in Israel. And not only that, but it had been prophesied that this was going to happen. All through the Old Testament, you can see God saying, I am going to leave you. I am going to leave you to your desires. My spirit will not live with you forever. God removed himself from Israel. And don't think that he won't remove himself from this country. Now God was not to be found in just one place despite what the Jews thought. F.F. Bruce also points out that God revealed himself long before, am I in the right spot? Long before Canaan, the people of God should not and are not tied to one place. Will the focus of Christianity switch to Africa? Will it switch to Asia, Korea, China? There's nothing saying that it's going to... Well, first of all, it's not in Western Europe anymore. Okay? It's hanging on in the United States. Nobody says that God's God's Spirit is going to dwell with us, that God's people are not somewhere else right now, and that He's moving His working Spirit elsewhere. The very tabernacle itself was movable. It was designed to go from country to country. God calls his people to always move forward. Uh, Forward in their service of God. Forward in their service of people. We're not supposed to stay static. Israel had stayed static. They stayed in one place. They stayed 
following one purpose. And it wasn't God's purpose they were following. Living in God's land of promise means always living like a pilgrim. Always being a stranger in a strange land. That's what Abraham was. That's what we are. Really, do you not feel that in our country today that you're a little bit of a stranger? Because I do. Strangers are hated to a certain extent. Strangers' customs are seen as foreign. We're not seen as mainstream in this country anymore. Now, I know that I will never see what we call the Holy Land. Frankly, I don't really want to go there, okay? I don't know why. I really have no desire. But truly, the Holy Land, the Holy Ground, is where God meets with His people. This is right here, right now, today. This is the land of promise. Not Israel, not the United States, but here, as we meet as the family of God. So, embrace the future. Next week, we'll get into Stephen. Let's close in prayer.